Happy New Year, everybody. It's Duncan Green here, um, welcoming you back um, with another roundup of blogs, uh, posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. But first of all, did anybody else secretly enjoy Corona Christmas? I, I have to say um, I've had lots of conversations this week with people who said, actually, you know, it was really great. There was just two or three, four of us. We didn't have that massive number of relatives around. We weren't cooking and washing up for 20. Um, and I feel much more relaxed and uh, refreshed than I normally do. Normally I go back to work absolutely exhausted. So they are secret enjoyment of um, lockdown Christmas. But I do wonder if it's a male thing. Maybe we're just more antisocial um, uh, than women. I don't know. Anyway, um, that's my confession for the year. Um, and no New Year's resolutions apart from just get through the next few months. Right. On with the show. Um, so uh, started the year as I always do um, with summary with a summary of 2020 on the blog. And I have to say it was a record breaking year. Lots of people in lockdown, lots of people with nothing else to do. And a couple of particularly fun competitions, I think, meant that um, the numbers of people visiting from poverty to power went up by about 20 percent compared to any previous year. Um, in Google Analytics, they have something called Unique Visitors, which is a, an IP address uh, which visits a blog. And in 2020, 436,000 unique visitors. So some of them would have come back, would come for just one, yeah, read just one post. Some of them would have read multiple posts. But 436,000 is a lot higher than any previous year. So thanks, everybody, for sticking with the blog. Um, and a lot and what the other interesting thing was just this big focus on Uganda in the year. Um, so um, at the end of March, we ran a Coronavision song contest, which we're asking, asking people to pick. We had a selection of public service songs um, and it was all yeah, it's just a bit of fun. But then um, a, a key ally of Bobby Wine, a guy called uh, Ashberg Kato, um, got involved and put a Facebook entry telling his followers that the winning entry in our little competition was going to be the official WHO soundtrack for sensitizing about sanitizing. And suddenly this enormous following of Bobby Wine, who's the um, you know, uh, opposition leader in Uganda and is up in the election next week and is, is going through quite a lot of harassment and his supporters are being um, beaten up and it's, it looks very messy. But anyway, his, his people all showed up in droves and we broke all records on the blog. So thanks, His Excellency, as he's known. Um, and uh, it's most traffic the blog's ever had in 12 years. So that was great. And uh, Bobby Wine, by the way, won um, with 98.33% of the votes cast for the best Coronavision song. So I hope the WHO is listening and makes it the anthem, but I, I don't hold out too much hope. But not only that, but our second most read post of the year was a completely different one on the politics of the pandemic by a Ugandan surgeon and epidemiologist, Olive Kobusinye. And that also got a massive number of, of reads. So uh, interestingly, um, just how big Uganda was in the year. Then I looked at the sort of other top most read posts and um, most of them were linked to the, the soul searching that's been going on in the aid sector. I mean, in Oxfam because of the Haiti scandal, but also more broadly, especially in the wake of Black Lives Matter, a huge amount of self-doubt of saying, you know, how do we deal with white savior complex? What is the role of international NGOs? And, and the posts we had and the resource list we had on that were the most popular of the whole year. And I've got mixed feelings about this. So on the one hand, yes, absolutely. 
there's a lot to put right. There's a lot of um, distasteful, wrong, bad things have gone on in the aid sector over the years. But I worry about just how internal this has become. You know, this is a time of enormous change. Um, you know, critical junctures like COVID lead to big changes and those changes can be threats or opportunities. And the good guys have to be out there having an influence, making a difference. And I worry that too many people are looking inwards at their own organization and not getting the balance right between that necessary internal reform and actually changing the world outside. But anyway, um, we shall see how the balance plays out this year. So the second post was uh, links I liked. Um, nothing much to point out except that, you know, this time of year, everybody does roundups as I've just done. So I just put a link links to my favorite roundups of the year on things like Africa, humanitarian, you know, lots of really good, because what you get is a kind of distillation of the best posts of the previous year. So that's quite nice. Third post of the week was just before Christmas, I was asked to give an inspiring five minutes to our, um, we had an online graduation ceremony for last year's graduates who graduated at the end uh, in, in June 2020. And being asked to be inspiring is horrendous. You know, it just brings me out in the cold sweat. It's just like being asked to be funny. You know, it absolutely chills your heart. But um, I gave it a go, but I wasn't very good. And I was absolutely exhausted by the end of last week, uh, last year, just because of so many things going on. So I'm not sure people really made much sense of what I was rambling on about. So I wrote it up. Uh, I, I decided to give myself another chance. Um, and I must say, I quite liked the online graduation. So what happens with a normal graduation is that everybody piles into a big room at the LSE. Um, you get some speeches and then you welcome everybody up to the stage to get their degree. Um, and it's great if, you, if, if your surname begins with A, because then everybody's clapping. But then the sort of, you know, decibel level drops. And by the time you get to Z, people are all exhausted and wanting to go to the, you know, go to the bar. So um, it, was, it seemed a bit unfair. Whereas this time, we just had one massive clap at the end. And what was really nice is everybody was on Zoom and you could see not just the students clapping, but all the parents dancing and dad dancing. And it was just hilarious. And I thought it was great, actually. So I quite like that. Anyway, the talk I gave was basically saying, it's not enough to be smart. You know, okay, if you get into the LSE, you're, you have to be smart. When you come out, you're hopefully smarter or what are you paying all that money for? But what I wanted to give the talk about was, okay, what else do you need apart from being smart? Um, uh, yeah, first of all, you have to get a job, right? So, and that's not gonna be easy, even though LSE grads obviously have a very good record in getting jobs. Um, but then when you go back in the world, don't just keep telling people how smart you are. Don't rely on being smart. That's really not the main issue. Um, you've got a certificate to prove it, all great. But actually, what about all the other things? And I, I guess, um, I was looking at this from the point of view of my class on activism and how do you bring about change? Uh, and I'll read you a little bit about um, um, what I put in the talk. So for would-be change makers, the world is pretty promising right now in many ways. If you believe as I do that critical junctures, shocks, crises, unexpected events, often act as windows of opportunity to transform institutions, laws, policies, behaviors, and norms, well, we're living through the mother of all such moments right now. What will the pandemic's legacy be on human geography? Do cities still make sense? On how we connect online or face-to-face? -face? On institutions, governments are still far, uh, suddenly far more proactive on the economy and everything else. On politics, 
Will something finally be done about social and economic inequality revealed even more by the pandemic? So in other words, there are plentiful opportunities to make change happen. But if you're an LSE graduate or a you know, graduate from any sort of major university, there are many more doubts and question marks about your role as a change maker. Questions over the white savior complex, the role of elites. And even if you aren't rich, it, you, know, you, you, you become a member of the elite just by graduating from a major university. So you need confidence, but uh, you need to value yourself. And yeah, you know, next few years might be difficult getting established and all the rest of it. But the, the qualities of a 21st century high achiever have to be different. They have to be um, about helping others achieve rather than seeking glory, being part of a movement, a servant, not a master. So I just point to four qualities, which I think change makers in the 2020s and 2030s and afterwards are going to need. First is evidence based humility. So this is the phrase I use for the fact that being humble isn't about being a, a lovely person. It's about actually recognizing that you cannot know what's going to work. You cannot know in complex systems how things are going to pan out. You have to be willing to change your mind. You have to be willing to learn and, and do U-turns and all the rest of it. So evidence-based humility is an absolutely essential one. You can't be dogmatic. Permanent curiosity, in order to operate that, that humility, you have to be permanently ready to be surprised. And I worry when activists just kind of rehearse the same argument and basically filter out reality and just see what they want to see. You have to have that sort of lateral vision to see the surprises out of the corner of your eyes and bring that into your work. Reflexivity. That's the, the fancy word for being conscious of your own power and the fact that it influences the world around you. By being an old white man, that shifts what people tell me when I travel, when I go out, when I leave my house. It shifts what I hear and what I don't hear. It shifts the language people use. It shifts, you know, what I can find out about the world. You have to be aware of that and think about how you can triangulate, compensate, find other ways of discovery which, get, which deal with your own position. And then finally, pluralism. You know, don't cultivate monocultures. Don't try and work with people who think just like you. Actively try and seek to work with people with whom you disagree and you're more likely to come up with interesting ideas and interesting answers. So th those are my four things. Evidence-based humility, permanent curiosity, reflexivity and pluralism. And I got quite a good reaction. Lots of people saying this isn't just about graduates. This is what everybody needs to needs to follow. And some very nice some ex-students got in touch saying, I wish our graduate speech had been a bit more like that and a bit less of the rah, rah, aren't we great? So just, you know, um, I'll put that out there for people to read. Fourth post of the week was about universal social protection. And it's basically saying, it's a really nice new paper from Oxfam, from Liliana Marcos Barba, Hilda van Regenmortel and Ellen Emker. Uh, um, and it's looking at uh, whether the pandemic is going to be a tipping point on social protection. So a transformation in the role towards this idea of universal social protection. So the whole of society has some sort of social protection system which can be scaled up during need um, and, and scaled down during times of you know, prosperity. Um, and the, the paper's called Shelter from the Storm, which happens to be one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs as well. So I like that. Um, so according to the World Bank, Social protection transfers have reached 1.3 billion people in response to COVID. So that's about one in five, uh, one in six of the world's population. So it's a big deal and has led to you know, governments digging very deep into their 
domestic resources, you know, borrowing capacity and all the rest of it. So the three authors looked at 126 low and middle income countries between April and September last year, working with uh, Development Pathways, another uh, NGO. And they came and they tried to sort of see what patterns emerged from those 126 countries. There were quite a few. I won't talk with you through them all, but I'll pick up a couple. So one is expansion is possible. So 75% of the countries investigated have introduced cash-based emergency social protection. And those are either horizontal expansions where you increase the number of people receiving or vertical expansion where you increase the amount of, of money each person receives in an existing social protection scheme. The second one is it's much easier if you've already got social protection systems in place. So countries with more robust social protection systems like South Africa have, been, have found it very easy to scale those up quickly rather than trying to introduce things from scratch. But overall, it's not a vast amount of money. Um, in those lower middle income countries, the average investment has been less than half percent of GDP. So it's not, it's not big money and too few people are protected. So unemployment schemes do not exist in the majority of the countries analysed. Okay? They're not there. If you lose your job, there's no scheme to help you. They lack automatic mechanisms that protect people. Emergency responses cover less than half of their populations. So there's still big gaps. And one of the big gaps is women. So very few schemes have taken into account the specific needs of women, um, especially things like care burdens, children home from school, all those kind of questions just not being factored in. So very useful survey. And I hope they'll update that, um, you know, going into 2021 to see um, what else we can learn from that from that exercise. Slip of tea. Then the final post of the week was um, uh, I'm a big fan of a new podcast series. Well, it's not so new now called Rethinking Humanitarianism. And it's run by the New Humanitarian and the Center for Global Development. And they kind of each episode, they, they bring in some guests and they, they probe a particular issue. Um, and this one, uh, I actually went back and listened to uh, November's podcast. I finally found a way to listen to podcasts. I don't normally listen to them, but I'm now forced because I have a bad back to walk for my exercise and walking around the park in the dark is very boring and perfect time to listen to podcasts. So I listened to this podcast walking around my local park. And this one is on the forces of disruption and the future of aid. And it's with um, the, the two hosts are Heba Ali from the New Humanitarian and Jeremy Conindyke from uh, CGD. But with them was Simon O'Connell, who's the incoming CEO of uh, SNV in the Netherlands, Paul Curian, who recently started a finance technology company for the aid industry, and Mutoni Wanyeki, who's the regional director for Africa at the Open Society Foundation. There was lots in there, and I sort of listened to it and I read the transcript. And the thing I picked up for the blog was the issue of size and structure. So Simon kicked off with a plea for more mergers. He pointed out that in South Sudan, there are well over 100 international NGOs operating. And he did a back of an envelope cal calculation that each of those NGOs has a country director, a finance director, operations director, HR director, and so on, so on. You're looking at half a million dollars a year per NGO to just have that basic um, you know, uh, uh, human resource in place. If they could just amalgamate you don't have to have two HR directors. You can just have one for, for you know, several of those NGOs. You suddenly free up a load of money and that money can either go for actually delivering food and blankets and services or whatever is required or giving more money 
yeah, making sure more money gets to local organisations rather than always being uh, uh, filtered out by the INGOs. So that was nice. So his argument was that INGOs need to get bigger. But what I was struck by was Paul Curian, who then said, no, 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 no. Actually, NGOs need to get smaller. And his argument is based on a paper he wrote in 2018 uh, called Network Humanitarianism, that um, what you want to do is, is have lots and lots of building blocks which uh, of different yeah, NGOs doing different things, quite small NGOs, which just come together, amalgamate to achieve particular goals and then disperse again. So you don't have these big mammoth bureaucracies. You have a much more flexible, modular organisation. And what he said, which caught my attention was, if we're talking about how local communities respond to aid, how local communities respond to disaster, they use the resources of the network society. That's how they organise their own responses. It's not just the material resources of aid, but the information resources, understanding who is doing what and where, where resources are, and being able to collaborate effectively. So part of network humanitarianism is moving towards more collaboration and emphasising the relations between individuals, communities and organisations, not the transactions. When I hear talk about aid outputs, I think of that as a transaction, whereas I think that we need to move to a much more relational approach. But where it got interesting was when Heba Ali then challenged him and said, so are you talking about an Airbnb? Of, um, uh, of humanitarianism and he got oh no I don't like the sound of that that's too big a platform so there is a question of you know he had lots of examples of small is beautiful kind of approaches of, to network humanitarianism but as soon as it goes to scale as soon as it gets big aren't you going to generate something like Airbnb some big platform which becomes dominant so interesting question there I mean, Tony had another brilliant insight onto, into Africa's response to Covid so the grassroots level, she's seen incredible examples of African solidarity. So this is people looking after each other at, at neighborhood level, at family level. And, you know, she said, one person I know supported almost 5,000 families through donations. So people come to this person because they're known personality, social influencer, they're trusted. And they say, here's some money. Can you make sure somebody gets it who needs it because of COVID? So that's very nice grassroots stuff. And then she said at the continental level, she, she said, incredible leadership from the African Union, from the chair, Cyril Ramaphosa, the appointment of African special envoys on COVID, the creation of a common purchasing platform for PPE, oxygen and now vaccines. The Africa Centre for Disease Control, CDC, has come, into, come of age in all this. Really impressive stuff going on at continental level. But she says, where are the linkages? That's the thing that's missing at the moment, the link between you know, the, the aid sector and these big continental initiatives and this fantastic stuff going on at local level. So that was a really interesting spot, I thought, from her that, that there's something missing there. But then also, yeah, when I listen to these discussions, I try and listen to the sort of meta stuff that's going on. And I thought I could, uh, I could sense two underlying quandaries which they were wrestling with. The first one is, can you actually separate money from power? This key, we keep coming back to this in different aspects of localization, of accountability. People in difficulty need money, need resources, lots of it right now. But if you help them get that money, and if you give them that money, the, the giver of the money inevitably needs to know where the money goes, and they have a lot of power because they're giving money. So how can you stop that system imposing its own views, its institutional logics? Um, is breaking up money into lots of small units like cash transfers or automat automaticity that the people get the money automatically without someone having to agree a grant? Are there ways around this? Um, so that's one option. The other option is to build a more diverse set of sources. So as well as the aid sector, you know, 
tapping into other forms like the, the money sent by diasporas. So lots and lots of money going back to community work from diasporas around the world, from Sudan, Somalia, wherever. Um, don't tie that into the aid business because then it'll all become part of the same institutional logic. Actually have a diversity of sources. Um, that might work. Domestic taxation, crowdfunding, lots of possibilities. But I do think you have to start from the assumption that money always is linked to power. And you have to make huge efforts and be very lucky if you can separate them in any meaningful level. And then the second one, which I do keep coming back to, is that whenever you hear aid people talk, they often talk about this thing called the community. And the community is often romanticised as a kind of homogeneous group of people who just really mean well and look out for each other, a kind of sort of socialist nirvana, but at local level, um, you know, magically free of power, struggles, anger, inequality, conflict. Well, anybody who spent time in a community knows that's not it. It's not like that. The power exists and inequality exists and conflict exists in all these places. So you just have to be careful when people advocate community solutions that it doesn't end up with that classic aid cliche of building the borehole for a community in the headman's backyard and then the headman just charges all the people in the community to get access to water and does very well, thank you, and you just didn't even know it was happening. So I think there's, you know, politics doesn't stop and power doesn't stop. So we just need to bear, bear those in mind whenever we come up with our nice answers to current problems. And on that note, have a great weekend and let's hope 2021 gets better. Although it's not looking that way right now. Bye, everybody.